Amen. God bless you guys. If you're in Ephesians chapter 1, again, we are deep diving um, into uh, the book or the epistle, the letter of first, I said Ephesians, sorry, the letter of first Corinthians. Um, I am so excited to dive into uh, this text with you. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. My goal this morning is to make two things clear about the Corinthian church. One, these people know Jesus. These people know Jesus. It's going, to be, it's going to be difficult as we journey through Corinthians. There are going to be times where you're going to say, do they, know, do they really know Jesus? And the, and the answer is yes. These people unequivocally know Jesus. And I want to make that clear on this morning. But the other thing that I want to make clear on this morning is that these people know Jesus, number one, but these people need Jesus. All right? I want to make that really, really clear this morning, too. I mean, you, you, you know, you know, you may be one of these people, but, but you know these people. I'm one of these people where sometimes somebody just has to look at me and say, you need Jesus. And, 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 and the Corinthians are in need of Jesus. So they know Jesus, but they are desperately in need of Jesus. There's a couple of things that Paul wants to do in the opening of this, this book for us and for the church uh, at Corinth. The first thing that he wants to do is he wants to offer them an encouraging greeting. He wants to encourage them. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Sathathenes. Oh, it's hard to say that. Sathathenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter is written by one called of God. Paul makes that clear in verse 1. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Throughout this letter, we are going to hear Paul make correction after correction after correction. But before we get to these stern corrections that Paul is going to make, we have Paul here setting the table for them in the very first verse. It's as if Paul is saying from the beginning, don't heed these corrections as my corrections. Treat these corrections as corrections coming from an apostle called by God, one chosen by God, one appointed by God. Treat these corrections as carrying the weight and the authority of God. I believe we have similar struggles in our own days. We wrestle to treat God's word like the very words of God. The Lord's words that we find throughout this sermon series will constantly challenge us, but we need to treat them with the weight that they deserve. We need to treat them with the weight um, of the authority of God and alter our lives accordingly. Don't be like so many of us. Oftentimes we read the word and we say, oh, that's really cute, Jesus. No, alter your life as you navigate through this text with me over, or in me and Corey for the next umpteen weeks. This letter is written by one called by God, but it is written to a church sanctified by God. Verse 2, it says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. To the church of God that is in Corinth. One theologian calls this phrase a great and joyful paradox. To the church of God 
that is in Corinth. In other words, given Corinth's crazy reputation, it's really wild to think about a church existing in the midst of it. Down the street probably from this church is a temple filled with uh, temple prostitutes. Down the street from this church is reckless de debauchery and drunkenness. Down the street from this church is all manner of evil and all manner of chaos. According to many scholars, Corinth was a big commercial port with a lot of commerce flowing in and out of it. It was a wealthy city. It was a luxurious city. It was, it was a, a, a prominent city. But as some of the young folks would say, it was a ratchet city. Extra ratchet. Corinth was filled to the brim with every type of immortality or immorality, rather, that you could think of. The city was so ratchet that the outsiders played into that ratchetness. For, for example, they said that, that you were being Corinthicized if you were engaging in rec reckless debauchery, that you were Corinthi uh, Corinth Corinthian-sizing or Corinthianizing, rather. I'm having struggles with words this morning. In stage plays, Corinthians were commonly represented as drunkards. That would be the Corinthian that showed up in the play, is the drunk guy in the play. If you were hoping that the Corinthian church, however, stood tall and strong in the face of the culture and was never taken in by the immorality in Corinth, your hope would be misplaced. We are calling this sermon series Grime and Glory because you will learn that the Corinthian church was often very grimy and they were often swept up in a lot of the culture's sins and idolatry. But the Corinthians weren't just swept up by the sins of the culture, they were, they were church folks, meaning they were always divided over a lot. I'm sure that never happens amongst church, church folks of today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, for example, says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Chloe's people have reported back to Paul that folks are back in Corinth and fighting over everything. They are suing one another. We'll learn that in chapter 6. They are arguing over the merits of sexual immorality. We'll learn about that in chapter 5. By the time we get to chapter 7, however, Paul has moved from Chloe's uh, issues to Issues that were found in a, in a letter that we never got a chance to read. So this letter, 1 Corinthians, is actually a response to a letter that came from Corinth. And Paul makes that clear in chapter 7, because in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Does that make sense? So they spend time, Paul spent times unpacking all of the things that they wrote to him about and that they were arguing about. Matters like whether or not it's a good thing to be married or a good thing to be single or whether or not it was a good thing to make dietary decisions based on whether or not food was offered to idols or whether or not it was a good thing to wear a head covering or not wear a head covering or whether it was a good, or how should we do Lord's Supper or, and all sorts of different things that they divided over. 
What's interesting is that despite all of those arguments and all of this influence of the culture on the church and all of these corrections that Paul is preparing to give and make, and yet, what does Paul key in on in the beginning of this text? Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul keys in on God's tremendous demonstrations of grace and mercy at work in this grimy but glorious church. Over and over and over again, because of the righteousness that has been secured for us through Jesus Christ, over and over and over again, God names us not by our record, but by the record of Jesus. He names us not by our record, but by the record that Jesus secured on our behalf. Paul is about to bring correction after correction after correction to this church, and yet, listening to these opening words, you would think that this is the greatest church on earth, sanctified in Christ Jesus. In other words, you who are set apart for the Lord's service, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. In other words, you are called together with every other saint in every other place in the world. You are called alongside, in other words, the squeaky, cleanest church that exists. You're called alongside that church too. They have no greater hold on Jesus Christ as you do. There's, there's at least two very important lessons in the way Paul is dealing with Corinth in this text for us. There's two important lessons at least here for us. One is, is that God loves his children even when they are woefully flawed. Even when we seem to be irrevocably flawed, God loves us. And why is that? It's because his love is not based on their perfection or your perfection or my perfection, but it is based on his perfection, his perfect love as seen through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection is the means by which God loves us despite our flaws. That's the first lesson you can learn in the way Paul is addressing this church. The second thing that you can learn in the way Paul is addressing this church is that the church sees itself, the church that sees itself as squeaky clean is just as righteous as the clumsiest and grimiest church that is pursuing Jesus. Because both of them are called not based on their own merit, but based on the work of the Son. In fact, if that squeaky, chain, uh, squeaky clean church isn't careful, it will fall out of favor with God. How so, you say? Well, remember the, the story that Jesus tells of two men, both being in the temple. One giving praise to God that he's not like the other guy. And the other guy saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it was that man that went home justified. Do you understand? When you think about just how much Paul is preparing to correct, uh, just how much Paul is preparing to correct Corinth in this letter, 
It is stunning for me that he begins this way. And if I were willing to bet, I would, I would say that some of you in this room or some of you that are watching online are probably in some ways like this church. Your failures are often front and often center in your life. Your flaws are clearly visible in your life. Your sin habits are, clear, are oftentimes very tough to break. And, and as a result, you may very well be sitting or watching online saying, God does not want to nor will he ever have use of me. 1 Corinthians, from the very beginning, proves that that is not the case. From the opening lines that Paul gives us, he proves that that is not the case. Those who have truly placed their hope and trust in Christ Jesus are sanctified and called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that includes you. If that's the case... If that's the case and that's the truth, that we are already sanctified, then what is this letter about? Believe it or not, this letter is about sanctification. You see, sanctification is both a position and a progression. Sanctification is a position and a progression. Sanctification is both where you are and where you are going. Do you understand that? Those who are in Christ Jesus are set apart. That's the position. That's where they are. But by making war on their sin, including those sins that are causing divisions, they are being sanctified. Paul is basically saying God has already positioned you as his own. Now go and be exactly who you were made to be. That's what this text is about. That's what this whole book is about. Going and being who we were called and who we were already made to be through Christ Jesus. You know, take for instance the adoption of a child. I have a friend who welcomed a new child into their home and early on the child expressed behavior that my friend and, and the spouse considered out of bounds with their family. And the child was at an age where where, where, where they could understand clear instructions and calls to obey. So when this child disobeyed, and it was a lot of times where this child disobeyed, my friend would explain to the child, we don't do that here. We don't do that here. That's not what we do. That's not our way. Now, was the child kicked out of the house? No. Positionally, the child was theirs. There's nothing that was going to change that. But progressively, the child was learning what it meant to live in that new household. Do you understand? That's what's happening in, that's what's happening in Corinth. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what's happening in us every day of our lives. This is what's driving Paul in this letter. Encouraging, sharpening, rebuking, correcting in order that Corinth, uh, Corinth might better resemble who the Lord has already declared them to be. So where does Paul start? He starts with a grateful reminder. You see this grateful reminder in, in verses 4 through 9. Before Paul dives too deep into where they have gone wrong, he wants to pause and offer thanks for where God has brought them from and what they've gotten right. Verse 4 through 9, read with me. It says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. 
so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's statements of thanksgiving are fairly normal in his writings, but they are particularly important for us here because of how much correction he's about to bring over the course of the next 15 chapters. At the heart of this thanksgiving is this truth. Whatever you need to grow in your sanctification before God, you actually already possess. God has already given it to you. In his spirit, you have everything you need for life and for godliness. Through Christ, you have everything you need for life and for godliness. You have received much grace from God, Paul tells Corinth. And that grace has led to you existing in the midst of a godless culture and still somehow managing to stand out and be different. How have they been visited by God's grace, one might ask in reading Corinth or Corinthians? Well, they've been enriched in him, enriched in God, in all speech and knowledge, and in all knowledge, Paul says. Now that you are in Christ, Paul is saying, you talk differently. Now that you are in Christ, you think differently. Your mind and your words are now running through the filter of the gospel which has saved you. The wisdom of Christ is on their minds and the gospel of Christ is on their tongues. Paul says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Again, I can't say it enough. We are about to see a lot of corrections for this church in the coming weeks. And yet, here is Paul saying, your enrichment in speech, your enrichment in knowledge, your transformed lives, your gifting has served as a testimony to those around you that what we've been preaching is real. You know, it would be easy to read this book and just think of the Corinthian church as just some wild and crazy church that's doing anything and everything. And in some sense, you would be right. But in another sense, God has done amazing work in this church. This should serve as a reminder that the church can be extremely complex. Oftentimes, we come to church looking for this perfection, and when, and when the perfection isn't there, we say, well, wait a second. I mean, are these people really serving Jesus or not? Paul would answer, yes, they are. The church is complex because people are there. People that exist in a fallen world, the already not yet, they've been saved, they've been redeemed, they are being sanctified, but they have yet to be glorified. And because they have yet to be glorified and they exist together as one assembly, as one church, neither has the church yet to be glorified. Remember I said that at the, at the heart of Paul's thanksgiving is this truth. Whatever you need to grow in your sanctification before God, you actually already possess but he takes that a step further for the Corinthians in verses 7 through 9. He says this, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says this, God's grace has so visited you that you have everything you need, not only to grow in sanctification, but to grow, continue, but to continue growing until the Lord comes back to get you. 
and presents you blameless. That because his spirit resides on the inside of you, you have what you need until he comes back for sanctification. Not simply, not simply in the sense, however, though, that, 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 that you have a gift that you need to be sustained, but you have the God that you need. It's not simply that you have some gift that's going to sustain you. You literally have the God that you need to sustain you. As grimy as Corinth is, and as grimy as the Corinthian church can sometimes be, Paul says you'll be kept until the end and presented to God as guiltless. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. Listen to this. God is so faithful that he will not let you let him down. You need to understand that. You need to, you need to let that settle in your soul, that God is so faithful that he will not allow you to let him down. He will not let you let him down. Oftentimes as Christians, we, we, when we struggle with our failures before God, one thing that we simply do not do enough of is remind ourselves, not of our strength, but of his faithfulness. We tell ourselves, I'm going to conquer this sin or that sin because of my strength and because of my will. But ultimately, you are going to eventually conquer this sin, not because of your strength and because of your will, but because he is faithful and he will not let you let, you, uh, let him down. Out of his faithfulness, he has determined to gift you with everything you need to keep you until the very end. Out of his faithfulness, he has committed to sustain you until the very end. Out of his faithfulness, he has determined to present you blameless before God the Father. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus. The salvation that started in you is God's doing. So the salvation that will end in you will also be God's doing. God doesn't start it and then doesn't finish it. If there's something that starts and doesn't finish, it was because God never started it. What God starts, he completes. And so if salvation is in you, then you can rest assured that he is faithful to complete it all the way until the very end. We can take confidence that there will be a day where we will be presented clean, not because we're always faithful to God, but because he is always faithful to us. This confidence in Christ is what Paul wants to build on throughout this letter that we're going to study together. It's as if Paul is saying, yes, this local body of believers definitely has its issues, but thankfully it has a master physician who will find the illness, treat it, and by the end will have it completely eradicated, any trace of it. However, part of the work of this master physician is using his people to bring correction when they are wayward. That correction is grace to you. I know sometimes it's hard to receive. But that correction is oftentimes graced to us. And so the master physician has employed Paul to bring that correction in this letter, and it starts at verse 10. We said unequivocally 
that this church knows Jesus. That was, that's what the first nine verses were for. But the last eight verses for this morning is to establish that this church unequivocally needs Jesus. One thread that is going to run throughout Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is the thread of division. In fact, much of what Paul is writing in Corinthians is an attempt to unify the body again around the cause of the gospel versus all the other secondary and tertiary issues that tend to divide a church. And so he immediately jumps into this by unpacking the issue that is threatening to destroy them. Verse 10, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is a quarreling, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Chloe's people have shared with Paul that factions within the body are being forged. A party spirit, as it is sometimes called. You have some people who are probably saying, those that say they follow Paul, they're probably saying something like, man, I just love how Paul's mind works. I mean, he's just so intricate. He has such theological depth, such theological sophistication. I've even heard that Peter thinks that he might be even deeper than him. I just, I just like leaders like that. I just love just following and listening to leaders and teachers like that. You got another person that's probably saying, oh, well, I mean, you know, Paul's okay. But I really, really, really love a good preacher. And man, have you ever heard Apollos preach? You're talking about somebody that could just build up a house and then tear it down in one sermon? Man, I'm telling you, I love me some Apollos, man. I mean, Paul is okay. I mean, but his preaching is a little, it's all quiet and just not, I don't know, man. He's too heady for me. I'm not really feeling all that. There's a, maybe somebody else is there that said, I mean, Apollos, yeah, he's, he's cool. Paul, he's okay. But Peter is my guy. Because Peter just tells it like it is, man. You're talking about somebody that's just going to set you straight, man. Peter is just, man, he's just going to let you know where he stands. One thing about Peter, you're always going to know where you stand. And that's the kind of leader I like. I like somebody that's going to let me know where I stand with him. And somebody else is probably saying, well, I mean, all of those, you know, those are great guys. But, but the reality is, is that y'all are just so worldly. I don't waste my time listening to any of those guys. As long as I got King Jesus. I don't need anybody else. And by making this claim, of course, they're becoming a party in and of itself, and they're basically esteeming themselves as being above everybody else, and so they, they've done the same thing that all the others have done. Now, I know nobody in the church these days has these problems. Nobody. Of course we have these problems. These are the exact same problems. These are, these, are, these are our problems. 
One says, I follow Calvin, and, consider, and thus they consider themselves superior because of their theological sophistication. One says, I follow Wesley, and thus they consider themselves superior because of their uh, methodical approach. Another says, I follow G.E. Patterson, and, and because of that, they consider themselves superior because of the passion that accompanies their preaching. Another says, I follow Mark Dever and considers himself superior because of their passion for the order of the local church. Another says, I follow Joe Biden and considers himself superior because of their commitment to justice matters. Another says, I follow Donald Trump and considers himself superior because of their commitment to personal responsibility matters. We all do this. We all set up these factions that are based on our styles and our personalities and our backgrounds and our psychological makeup and our philosophical approaches and our political alliances. And they align with who we are and they align with who our families are and they align with who our friends are. And then we elevate them to the level of first order importance. We all do this. By the way, if you wonder why most churches look unusually like you do, and only like you do. You go to one church and everybody in that church looks unusually, unusually like you do. And they think unusually like you do. And then you go to another church and that church looks unusually like you do. And they think unusually like you do. If you wonder why those churches exist, start no further than this. It's because we create factions that are based on everything else but the thing of first importance. And to that, Paul has three requests. I want all of you to agree. I want to ensure that there are no divisions among you. And I want to ensure that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. All of those things are basically the same thing. Same mind, same judgment. I want you to be on the same page. I want you to think the same. I want you to have the same value when you come into the local gathering, to the local assembly. How on earth do you accomplish this? First thing you have to do is have humility before God's word. We have to labor as people of faith, as people of Christ, we have to labor to bring everything under the subjection of God's word or under subjection to God's word. Music, musical styles, well, what does God's word say about it? Order of worship, well, what does God's word say about it? Attire, well, what does God's word say about it? Book, chapter, verse. That's how we establish agreement. If there's not a book, chapter, and verse, then we have to have the humility of saying, if God didn't think it was important to be clear, then it is probably not important for us to drive wedges between us. Do you understand that? And if you say, well, I don't understand that, then what you're basically saying is that you have enough knowledge to surpass God's knowledge in establishing unity around Christ. Book, chapter, verse. That's our aim. That's our pursuit. 
Anything else that exists outside of that is more than likely a secondary issue or a tertiary issue. And when it becomes a secondary issue, when it becomes a tertiary issue, then, then what happens? Then we go from having humility before God's word to having humility with one another. If it's a secondary issue, tertiary issue, I don't have book, chapter, verse on this, then it's possibly prudence and oftentimes preference. And so I have to be willing to work with each other. I have to be willing to concede and say, you know, okay, we don't, we don't, we don't have to agree on this. You don't have book, chapter, verse. I don't have book, chapter, verse. We don't have to agree. We don't have to, we don't have to create faction over this. We don't have to create two sections in our church over this. We can, we can, we can navigate this together. We can, choose to not even, we can choose to not even go any farther on this issue. Or we can choose to concede here and concede there for the sake of unity. Here's the key to unity is seen in verses 14 through 17. Wrapping up, it says this, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be empty of it's power. Please only hear what I'm saying. All right? Don't hear what I am not saying right now. Do not hear something else past what I'm saying. Paul appears to make an appeal that the gospel is above the priority of baptism. Well, you mean about baptism is not important, Crawford? No, I did not say that. I said that Paul appears to make an appeal that the, that, that the gospel is above the priority of baptism. He is not saying that baptism is not, isn't important. I'm not saying that baptism isn't important. But he's saying, I'm so glad that I didn't baptize any of you. Because then you would have yet another opportunity for you, uh, for you guys to divide over. And besides, I wasn't sent to baptize. I was sent to preach the gospel. He's saying that is the main thing. That is the most important thing. Paul is establishing that the gospel is supreme. And I love how he set this up, sets this up, by the way. I don't know if you were paying attention, but Paul is thinking about everyone he's baptized. He's like, man, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you except maybe Crispus and Gaius, and you can almost picture uh, Sothothenes in the room and saying like, hey, but, but did you baptize Stephanus? And he's like, well, yeah, 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 I baptized Stephanus too. But that's it, right? <laughs> right? You, can, you can see this in, in, as you're reading through the text. Why is that important? It is important to point to something that, it, that, that, that is very important in our faith. Baptism is important to our faith. A holy sacrament like baptism is important to our faith. But Paul takes something that is very important to our faith, and he says that even that will not occupy the mind space that the gospel deserves. Do you understand that? I'm not going to make baptism so supreme and elevate it over the gospel that now I'm driving wedges between one another based on who got baptized by who. 
In order to build and establish unity, we must build a true sense of the importance of the gospel above and beyond everything else. When I think about how much energy we spend talking about everything else but the gospel, is it any wonder why we're always so divided? We spend all of our energy as a church hopping up in pulpits and just talking about everything but the gospel. And then we're shocked when we're divided as churches. Paul makes the proclamation of the gospel the main thing. Paul also makes Christ the main thing. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He said, all that matters is that you follow Jesus. Doesn't matter you follow me. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? And when I start stepping outside the bounds of what Jesus says, then you can stop listening. You don't have to follow what I say. It becomes opinion. You might trust my judgment. You might trust my wisdom. But you don't build churches on that. Do you understand? The church doesn't rise and fall on my judgments. The church rises and falls on Christ. The church is built on the foundation of Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. The supremacy of the gospel, the supremacy of Christ, and lastly, verse 17, the supremacy of Christ and the cross, Christ crucified. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be empty of its power. Paul says, I'm not going to let fancy reasoning get in the way. I'm not going to let sophisticated arguments and philosophical musings get in the way. I'm not going to allow those things to, to create a new set of scriptures for you to divide over. And brothers and sisters, I can tell you that this is happening all the time. That we create new sets of scriptures and we say, you have to follow this too. If you don't follow this, then you're not one of us. And what happens? Well, divisions happen. And then eventually over time, that group of people will say, well, well we got something else too that you got to follow. And if you don't follow that, then you're not going to be one of us. And then we split again. And then eventually that smaller group is going to say, well, well, we got another thing too that you got to follow. And if you don't follow that, then you're, then you're not one of us. And all of it is eloquence. All of it is sophisticated arguments. All of it is, you know, sounds good. And at the same time, what is it doing? It's robbing the cross of its power. It's emptying the cross of its power. Saints of God, what unifies us? What unifies us is that there was one born of a virgin who came down from heaven, emptied himself, made, him, made himself of no form, or made himself, uh, took on the form of a servant, rather. And he lived a perfect life though tempted by the devil, lived a perfect life, obeyed God the Father in every way. And then based on trumped up charges, he was brought before councils, he was whipped, he was beaten, crown of thorns was placed on his head, was mocked and scorned. Then he was given a tree, an old rugged tree, and told 
to carry that tree, which he did, along with the help of others along the way. He carried that tree up to the hill to call Calvary. And he hung there, and he hung there, and he hung there, and he gasped for breath, and he gasped for air. And people mocked, and they laughed, and they scorned. And in their mockery, and in their laughing, and in their scorning, and in their sin, both past, present, and future, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And eventually, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. He died for you. And he died for me. And he died for all the sinners throughout, uh, throughout time that would lay their lives in his hands and say, I trust you with my life, Jesus, by faith. I trust you as Lord and Savior. And then he was in the tomb for three days, and he rose from the grave with all power in his hands. That's what we unify around. All those who would declare him as Lord and Savior will be given salvation, and will have the opportunity to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth in eternity. That's what we unify around. And he's given us his word through his apostles and through his prophets. This is what we unify around. And when we start moving and start uh, branching out into other things, then divisions are sure to come. And so may we journey through this text over the next several weeks, and may we grow to understand simply not exact, not only our call to unity, but may we grow to understand what thus says the Lord, and may we align our lives and our hearts around it. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you, and we give you all the praise and all the glory and honor.